Well, a month ago we gathered to consider the prayer reports of Paul to the Ephesians. We looked at his first petition, and this afternoon we'll be looking at part two, his second petition. One of my favorite passages about prayer is in Luke 11, where Jesus has been praying, and his disciples ask him to teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Obviously, they saw him praying fervently, and in Gethsemane, had they been awake, they would have seen him sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Jesus is our perfect example in prayer. He says at the end of that instruction, after emphasizing that we have to keep asking and seeking and knocking, and he illustrates that with the Father who, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? Much of our prayer life is spent in praying, or ought to, ought to be spent in praying, for fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit. We, we gather together here to be filled with the Spirit. An illustration that many have used is the illust- illustration of blowing up a balloon. A balloon is filled, but uh, it can be filled more. We pray for this gift, and it ought to be at the heart of our concern as we learn to pray more effectively. We learn many things by observing others and imitating them. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he commanded, Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. The end goal here in Paul's prayer report is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And because Paul was so filled with all the fullness of God, he could pray in an exemplary way and he could say with authority, I urge you to imitate me. So we would do well to learn how to pray by meditating on his prayers and his prayer report. Of course, As I said a month ago, Scripture provides many inspired and exemplary prayers for us to emulate. Abram, Jacob, who wrestled with God and prevailed, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Daniel, Nehemiah, and of course, preeminently Jesus and his apostles. There is indeed hope for us. This afternoon we focus on Paul's prayers for and his prayer report to the Ephesians. I want to read that second half of his prayer report. 
I, I look at this as one report to the Ephesians about how he is praying for them, one report that gets divided into two because of his being carried away in meditating on the glories of redemption. I will read the first prayer report that we looked at a month ago at the end of chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and then we'll look at the second part in chapter 3. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now Paul was inspired to write this and he was carried away in the Holy Spirit with these glorious, inexpressible thoughts about God's purposes and redemption. And so already he's, he's launched into another meditation uh, covered in chapters 2 and 3. He picks up again this report in chapter 3, verse 14. I'll read to the end of the chapter. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now the Apostle Paul was filled with all the fullness of God. He experienced a fullness of the indwelling Christ. And he wants these Ephesian saints. He wants all saints. And the Spirit wants you and me to experience this glorious maturity in the fullness of the stature of Christ. He wants us to be perfect and mature, to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. 
He wants us to be filled with all the knowledge of His will in, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He longs for us to know these things, to experience these things. I mentioned that with great joy about a year and a half ago, I discovered a book by D.A. Carson titled Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Now, in its second edition, he has thoughtfully reflected on all Paul's prayers that are recorded for us in Scripture. I've recently been reading this book and richly blessed by it. Brothers and sisters, D.A. Carson has deeply convicted and lovingly provoked me to greater zeal in my own prayer life. He mentions how this, this book began as a series of seven sermons preached in various settings. The particular setting that is of most interest to me is the setting in speaking to the Church Missionary Society Summer School in New South Wales in early January 1990. He's now 75 years old and has been practicing this art of praying like Paul prayed for the Ephesians for at least 32 years. He testified in his preface that God's strength is displayed in our weakness for the meetings in New South Wales were full of the presence and power of the Lord. He concludes chapter 3 with this exhortation, Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision. That vision embraces who God is, what He has done, who we are, where we are going, what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. Then we will persevere in our praying until we reach the goal God himself has set for us. We can advance our mastery of godly prayer in part by practicing and rehearsing Paul's exemplary prayers. They're recorded for us in Scripture for this reason, that we might imitate them, that we might, like the disciples, be instructed by this master who was instructed by Jesus himself. But to effectively imitate his praying about and for the Ephesians, we must consider his motivations, his requests, his goals. We looked at some of those motivations a month ago, and I'll try not to repeat my, myself too heavily. But he begins his prayer report with words like, therefore, and for this reason. These are clues to look back at the context and think about what is motivating Paul to pray in the specific manner that he does. He's worshiping God. He's blessing God. He's breaking forth into eulogy, as the Greek word is literally. Blessed be God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's been worshiping God in prayer for His sovereign majesty and redemptive purposes for our lives, especially the high mysteries of election and 
predestination. He's wonderstruck by it all. There is light cast upon his goals for us as his people, and we'll ponder more about that. But knowing God and Scripture provides fuel for our prayers like athletes wrestling in a contest of, or soldiers striving in battle. Paul elsewhere speaks of his agony, his striving and wrestling in prayer. In one sense, God's goals for us, indeed, a motivation to pray more fervently, are indeed a motivation to pray more fervently because God's foreordained plans are accomplished by his appointed means of grace. So knowing that God has destined us to be holy and without blame before Him in love to the praise and the glory of His grace ought certainly to stir us up with zeal to pray for the accomplishment of that goal. Another burning motivation to pray derives from thinking about the accomplishment of our redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I don't recall whether I mentioned this a month ago, but John Flavel, a favorite Puritan writer of mine, once called this a heart-melting exercise. Contemplating Christ's passion as we do in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is good and necessary for our growth and grace. While it is primarily something we do in remembrance in, in him, of him, it is also an important gospel proclamation. I believe it also helps to knit our hearts together in genuine affection for one another, motivating us to pray more fervently. Zechariah prophesied that God would pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David and so forth. Once in family worship I was reading the account of the crucifixion of our Savior. And one of my children just burst into tears at the thought of what had been done to Jesus. Now, we ought not to pursue emotion for emotion's sake. In fact, emotion can be, as Flavel said, a flower of nature. No different than being moved to tears by a touching story. And an emotional response is, uh, to the rejection, suffering, and crucifixion of Christ is not an infallible sign of saving grace. But, as Flavel il illustrates so vividly, faith is that burning glass, the magnifying glass that concentrates the rays of God's glory to our hearts, to melt our hearts, to make it burn. I believe that this is precisely what Paul was doing. Paul had received reports of their faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. 
These are precious brothers and sisters in Christ who, according to Paul in chapter 2, were once dead in trespasses and sins. They once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, children of wrath just as the others. What a miracle of grace! But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As He meditated on the glory of God's grace toward these new Gentile believers in Ephesus, He realized with deep emotion that God had begun fulfilling long-promised prophecies and the gathering together in one, all things in Christ. Because of this, his heart had melted, and he couldn't help but break forth into worship, blessing and praising God. He found himself profusely giving thanks for these divine blessings so abundantly bestowed upon them. And I ask you today, have you experienced these motivations in your heart as you pray? The church desperately needs to nourish these impulses together with others in prayer meetings of various sizes. After all, if Paul prayed daily in small groups with his associates, shouldn't we pursue the same? These motivations were working on Paul's heart as he prayed for these dear saints. They were made alive together with Christ, showing the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 22, he contemplates this new commonwealth and temple. The fact that we were once aliens and uh, foreigners to the covenants of promise. We were not members of the commonwealth of Israel. And now in Christ, together, Jew and Gentile believers are being built up into a spiritual house of worship. Paul's own gospel commission in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 motivated him to pray. Think of some of the the thoughts there in that section of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, and I don't know whether he's starting to go back to his prayer report and then gets caught up again in a, a reverie, but he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you how that by revelation He made known to me the mystery by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. He goes on to speak about how the apostles and the prophets uh, foretold of these things, but there was a mystery that was yet to be revealed by the apostles of Christ and the New Testament prophets. He speaks of his own stewardship, this gift of the grace of God given to him by the effective working of his power. Think of it. Saul the rabbi was on a binge to kill and destroy Christians, to blot out this new faith when confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. And in his tender mercies, Christ commissioned him and gave him a stewardship to proclaim the riches of his grace in the gospel to the Gentiles, as well as to Jews, but primarily to the Gentile world. 
to make us see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying there is he preaches the gospel as sinners are converted, as we are transformed and conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The angels behold this and marvel at what God is doing and has done. Great theologians like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, great preachers of the gospel, thrilled to liken this to a theater as John Calvin imagined the nobles and barons of the heavens of heaven's court assembling and gathering there in that theater god is doing a great work in redeeming a people for himself this is his purpose through the ages to bring about a people cherished and treasured by him as his own heritage and paul says for this reason i bow my knees i bend my knees to the father He stirred up to pray for them and for the church and for God's plans. We look then at his requests. D.A. Carson is of the opinion that Paul reports here two main requests. The first is mentioned in chapter 1, a prayer for revelation, praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then, like a handheld collapsible telescope, he brings out these goals that uh, we're, uh, we'll look at in a moment. The second one is a petition for power, and we find that in chapter 3, verses 14 and following. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might throughout his spirit or through his spirit in the inner man. At the end of chapter 1 he's praying that God would open our eyes and reveal himself to us to show us his glory that we would be enlightened to understand these things that are important. The um, things he mentions there in chapter 1 what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, or rather the, that you may know the hope of his calling, that are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Those are the goals in mind in praying for this revelation. I highly recommend writing out these prayers and memorizing them in order to practice praying like Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Mastering the discipline of prayer is no different in this respect than other disciplines in life. Athletes, scholars, technicians, and mus musicians all devote hours to practice. The difference is that in the realm of redemptive grace and disciplining ourselves for godliness, we are operating at a much higher level, at the level of spiritual grace and empowerment. And this brings us to a consideration of Paul's goals for all who are in 
Christ Jesus. But let's think for a moment first about this prayer for power. As we contemplate the fact that the same resurrection power that brought Jesus up from the dead has been at work in our lives. We've been made alive together in Christ. We've been resurrected from death and bondage to sin, set free. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We, through our union with Christ, have access to this power, this amazing and and inexhaustible power that we need in order to live our lives here on this earthly journey heavenward. We need to pray for that power. We need to pray that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit. And primarily, we're praying for Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. But I'm breaking that apart as a goal here. We're praying for power. We're praying that we would be increasingly strengthened, just as we pray for our children, that they'll grow up and be healthy and strong and mature into adulthood. We long to reach the fullness of the stature of maturity in Christ. We long to grow up and to be strong in Him and to be increasing daily in our ability to do all things that Christ has asked us to do. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We need this empowering. We need this inner strength to press on to believe and to trust Jesus. We need power to do the work that we're called to do. It takes a great effort to crucify the old man. We need to wrestle down that old man and the old nature and crucify him. And it takes heroic effort. We need to be doing exploits and mighty heroic deeds through the strength of Christ. Christ gives us that strength. And I like to think that we are being strengthened in the inner man so that we can bear the weight of the glory of Christ as He comes to dwell in our hearts. As He knocks on the door and we invite Him into our hearts, we should be humbled. Self should leave the door or should leave the house. Our self-interests should be set under Christ's command. Jesus comes to dwell in our hearts and we need to be strengthened to face the challenges that will follow. He's entered a fixer-upper. We are in our fallen sinful natures a shack, a hovel, a run-down dwelling place. And yet God desires to dwell in our hearts. He desires to transform us into a temple, a glorious home in which He delights to dwell. And that may be knocking out walls and painting and restructuring. It may be the painful process of repentance in our lives and letting go of things that we have treasured that are contrary to a life of righteous and holy living. Christ is living and dwelling in our hearts and we need to be strengthened for that purpose. 
for that goal. I like to think that Christ, in all of his glory, dwelling in our hearts would be overwhelming and impossible to bear. We would be crushed and annihilated were it not for God's grace and for our union with him through faith in Christ. And so this brings us then to uh, these goals that uh, are mentioned here in chapter 3. Again, let's review. In chapter 1, we saw 3, that we may know the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now in chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, we're praying for strength and an ever-increasing ever increasing strength that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and breadth, uh, length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And thirdly, that you may know or that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I've already reflected on the fact that Christ is dwelling in our hearts and we need to be strengthened for all the changes that must come in order for Him to find this a home in which he delights to dwell. He wants and must change your desires. He must teach you how to crucify the old man and to walk in holiness with him. But another goal here that is mentioned, and like a handheld telescope, Paul opens up each of these, this collapsing handheld telescope, he opens up each of these sets of goals out of, his, out of his two main requests. The focus here is on Christ dwelling in our, in our hearts and being rooted and grounded in love to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. God is love. Christ is as Paul says in Colossians 2.9, the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For Christ to come into our hearts and to live and dwell there is love personified and embodied. Jesus was the one who often was moved with compassion and wept for sinners who were like sheep without a shepherd. The Apostle Paul has experienced this Christ in his heart and life. He has become conformed in an ever-increasing way to the likeness of Christ. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me, for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ. To this end I also labor, striving the 
according to his working which works in me mightily. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16 he speaks about the gifts that are given. Christ in triumph has ascended into heaven giving gifts to men and his focus here is on the fact that this ministry of the church will go on until, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and so forth. We're a body. We're a family. How much time do you spend with Christ? How much time do you spend reading the Bible and meditating on His Word and conversing with Christ? He's living with you in your heart. He's the guest in the home of your heart. He's there to stir you up and by example to teach you how to pray. John Calvin says uh, in speaking of this passage, and knowing the love of Christ. The love of Christ contains within itself the whole of wisdom, so that the words may run thus, that ye may be able to comprehend the love of Christ, which is the length and breadth, the depth and height, that is the complete perfection of all wisdom. It is of great importance that we should be told what is necessary for us to know and what the Lord desires us to contemplate above and below, on the right hand and on the left, before and behind, the love of Christ is held out to us as the subject which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations, and in which we ought to be wholly plunged. He who is in possession of this alone has enough. I want to tell you a story about a man who gave his life to Christ. He was known as a great man of God, but he was saved from a life transformed by God from a life as a thief who betrayed his closest friends to a man who put himself at God's disposal. George Mueller said to have read the Bible more than 200 times, many of which on his knees. By the way, I just received this from a friend who posted it on Facebook. Before his death, asked by a reporter what he would still like to do, he, on his knees, replied to read more of the Bible because I know too little about the excellence of Christ. This was an evangelical Christian, director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, where he cared for 10,024 orphans throughout his life based on God's promise found in Psalm 68.5. God is a father to the orphans. He also was involved in the education of children and founded 117 schools that offered Christian education to 120,000 children, many of them without parents. 
He said, if I, a poor man, can build and administer an orphanage without asking anyone for money or assistance, only through prayer and faith, this, together with the blessing of the Lord, could encourage God's children in faith, being also a powerful testimony to the unbelievers about existence of God. On the day of his funeral, the Bristol factories shut down. Thousands of people came to pray their, pay their last respects to the man who was transformed by God from a thief who betrayed his closest friends to a man who put himself at God's disposal. Mueller wrote of his own conversion, When I surrendered myself totally to, the God, to God, the love of money was gone. The love of a home was gone. The affection of wealth was gone. The love of worldly things was gone. God has become my everything. I found everything in him. There is nothing else I wanted, and I stayed with him, a happy man, a very happy man, seeking to only accomplish the things of God. In the last week, I've been listening to sermons by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and some of them on this very passage, uh, passages about the, this very prayer of Paul's. One sermon that he preached on March 31st in 1957 when I was going on four years of age. Uh, I just listened to this audio recording and he said, in referring to the Sermon on the Mount, be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father which is in heaven is perfect. You haven't suddenly become divine when you're filled with all the fullness of God. You haven't ceased to be a man. You haven't suddenly become eternal and immutable and absolute and omnipotent and omniscient. No, no. But this fullness of God in these communicable attributes has come into you and you in turn are manifesting and displaying and showing the same love as God shows to sinners. You are showing it to others. We must see what it means to us in our day-to-day experiences and why we therefore should be seeking for it and praying this prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians for ourselves day by day and unceasingly until we attain even unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. And so this is Paul's ultimate goal as he prayed for the Ephesians, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we might know something of this love of God displayed in Christ in all of its breadth and length and height and depth, this love that surpasses knowledge. Jonathan Edwards one afternoon was out for a ride in the woods for his health in 1737. As he slipped off his horse, he began to pray. And he says in his journal, not meant to publish this publicly, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet 
appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent and with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into our hearts and lives, for living in us and among us, for we individually and corporately are the temple of God. You dwell here in our midst and we are grieved that we often quench your spirit. We often are mean-spirited and unkind to one another not tender-hearted and forgiving as we ought to be. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this celebration of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life that you laid your glory aside and came into this world in the form of a servant, in the likeness of sinful flesh. You came and lived and dwelt here and fulfilled the law of God for us. You bore our sins and you've imputed your righteousness to us and we stand with you in union with you in the heavenly places hearing those words This is my beloved son. These are my beloved children in whom I am well pleased because of what you have accomplished for us. We ask for your blessing now as we seek to commemorate your death as you have commanded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.